1: You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and enjoy.
0: All right, lovely listeners, welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm Maddie Gobo, the events manager at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Uh, We are so excited to welcome Michelle Gallen today. She's the author of Big Girl, Small Town. Um, And we're going to be talking about this fantastic debut novel, but first I want to give you a little bit of info about Michelle. Michelle Gallen was born in County Tyrone in the mid-1970s and grew up during the Troubles, a few miles from the border between what she was told was the Free State and the United Kingdom. She studied English literature at Trinity College Dublin and won several prestigious prizes as a young writer. Following a devastating brain injury in her mid-20s, she co-founded three award-winning companies and won international recognition for digital innovation. She now lives in Dublin with her husband and kids. Big Girl, Small Town is her first novel. It's been shortlisted for the Newcomer of the Year category at the Irish Book Awards. And um, it's also just been shortlisted for the Costa Book Award. Is that right?
2: Yeah, we, we just found out last week that um, short for the Acosta Book Award in the new book category, which is kind of mind-blowing.
0: That's fantastic. Well, I'm so glad that we could celebrate together here on the podcast. Thanks. <laughs> um, so, Michelle, do you want to start us off with a short reading, give our readers a little taste of the book?
2: I will, indeed. And I'm going to, Majella's is. The the book has got a lot of um, list items in it because Magella has a list of 97 things that she hates. And um, the list of things that she likes is a lot shorter. But um, so we're on item 18.1, periods, specifically PMS. Magella's hairpins were sticking into her. No matter what she did, she couldn't sort them out. It was fucking her off. She knew by the all over body aches and the itching and the scratching feeling she had under her skin that her period was due. Marty was in foul form too, having had a row with Philomena. This was not Magella's problem, and she hoped Marty would not make it her problem. The buzzer sounded and red onions walked into the chipper, his pasty, freckled face streaked with dirt from work. Magella hadn't seen him since he'd found his dad dead on the settee, and she knew she should say something to him. So she paused for what she knew was too long, searching for the right words. And then she spoke, what can I get you? Red Onions took a long look at the fluorescent menu board above Magella's head, then turned his grey eyes towards her. Big sausage supper and a can of Coke, please. on up. She wrote the order on her wee notebook, ripped the page out and spiked it onto the board, even though she could tell Marty had heard the order as it came in and already had the food bubbling in the fryer. Red Onions sat down in the window seat, put his toolbox at his feet and rested his head in his hands. Magella watched him comb his fingers slowly through his glowing ginger hair. He looked tired. Magella hadn't seen him for a week. She'd taken six days off work with no pay for her granny's wake and funeral, and after that, Red Onions had his dad's wake and funeral to attend to. Magella hated wakes. She spent three days trapped in her aunt Marie's house, scrutinising an unending stream of people who'd come in to have a look at the corpse laid out in the only bedroom. It had been a big wake, almost as big as Brandy Hagen's after been blown up by the loyalists because his photo had been in the paper for distributing shamrocks before mass on St. Patrick's Day. Wakes for people killed in explosions usually featured closed coffins. But because the hospital staff did such a great job of patching Brandy back together during the seven days he'd survived after the explosion, the town had the novelty of a half-open coffin at his wake. Everyone with the faintest connection to the family dropped in for a gawk at Brindy's sewn up face. Magella had been dragged along by her ma, who had pushed her into the crowded house, and she spent the whole hour in a horror of embarrassment, crammed into close range with neighbours, people from school, and strangers. It unnerved Magella to see they put Brindy in a full size coffin, even though he'd lost both his legs. After she'd found a place to stand and had been given a cup of tea, she stood there wondering if they'd refrigerated his legs when he'd first been brought into the hospital, in case he'd die and could be buried complete, or if they'd incinerated them when it became clear there wasn't enough to sew back on. Magella didn't get wigs. Everyone at her granny's wake had blathered on about the brilliant tradition of wakes and how they were a power of good for the bereaved, and how the wakes kept the community together, and how if it wasn't for wakes and funerals, sure, they'd hardly ever see each other anymore because of the way the telly keeps everyone indoors. The wake didn't feel like a part of good to Magella, who was obliged by tradition to tramp around her Aunt Marie's damp wee house for hours, offering a tray full of scones and sandwiches to a load of wet-eyed oil fellas, who kept telling her what a great dancer her granny had been in her day. Everyone told Magella what she already knew, that no one deserved that end, no one. Hour after hour, Magella carried the tray and all she could think was, I'm still at it still serving food up to the greedy fuckers. She stared out over Red Onions's head to the diamond where Agnes Ferguson was bent over coughing while her son packed up her stole in the fading light. Thank you. Okay. Oh, it's,
0: it's such a pleasure to hear you read these because I mean, the, the book is quite, quite funny. And a lot of that dark humor really comes through in Magella's voice. I mean, just thinking about what happened to the legs. Oh, oh my god, <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, so I wanted to start off thinking about Magella, who is our our protagonist here, and and she is absolutely compelling and so like sharp and such a good observer. Um, and the way that she observes uh, the world around her is kind of through her, her own kind of internal system of likes and dislikes. And she's created quite complex lists with subcategories, and she keeps track of, of them as they kind of as uh, as they kind of appear in her life. Um, so I'm kind of I'm curious where this particular system came from and how you see it as kind of the way into Magella as our narrator, as our kind of our protagonist of this book.
2: So the list actually came in quite late and interestingly, um, it came after, so I wrote the book and then spent 10 years trying to get a publisher. It was a a long time and, and what happened was I kept putting it out to agents and publishers and I kept getting people saying to me, you know, this is really good, it's really well written, it's really, it's a great world, but what's wrong with Magella? And I kept thinking, sure, there's nothing wrong with Magella. Magella's Magella. Um, but then, someone quite close to me in in, in my life um, got a, a reasonably late diagnosis of autism. One of the one of the females in my life, and I was already really familiar with the male presentation of autism. So I decided, look, I'm going to go away and look up to see how, how is this different for women. And when I looked it up, I went, oh, okay and then i realized that what is wrong with magella is that she's an undiagnosed autistic woman and for what it's worth i think there's nothing wrong with magella i think she's a glorious person and i love her mind but as soon as i made that connection the list which had been in my head all along cuz like i i could see the list in my own head and as soon as i made the connection i was like magella's list has to come top it the whole thing has to be framed around magella's list and so i took I had three weeks without my children. My husband took the kids away for three weeks. And I spent, I took those three weeks and I just went into every scene and I pulled the list out and it was incredibly cathartic.
0: (laughs) So you must have the entire list written out somewhere.
2: Yeah, I have the whole list. I haven't shared it with anyone. It's it feels yeah, it feels quite personal that list. <laughs> um, Magella's list, I mean, Magella's list of things she doesn't like is quite long and very complex. It's ninety, it's ninety seven full items. But then her list of things she does like is is very short, right? It's ten things. And I love the simplicity and the kind of um, the things she does love. They're they're just straightforward. These are good things in her life, and she loves them. She's not sitting there thinking of what she doesn't have. She's loving what she does have.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, the two things that stand out to
0: me on that list are sex and hair dryers. <laughs> the that she likes.
2: <laughs> Wait, they're two, two separate items. <laughs> two separate items, yes. Yeah, two separate items sex and then hair dryers. And then yeah, hair dryers. I, 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 personally, I appreciate hair dryers on a daily basis. I don't know about anybody else, but definitely.
0: <laughs> no, I, I see where she's coming from, 100%. Um, so so magella 's life kind of revolves around a series of very defined routines, um, and those routines take place in her family home with her mother um, who 's kind of languishing and dealing with her own alcoholism and then her her job at the the local chip shop um, where she kind of works the the night shift um, and i mean it 's so incredible what i 'm loving about this book as i 'm reading it is how much detail is packed into these two spaces that she keeps revisiting over and over again but you find something new every time and she she enlivens them so much with her kind of commentary her running kind of narration of what's what she's seeing and what's she's encountering in these two spaces that are so so familiar um, and i i imagine that that was pretty hard, difficult to write um, and i'm curious you know are there are there actual kind of like real life places that these, that these homes are based on, that the home and the um, chip shop are based on, and um, how did you kind of, like, accomplish this deepening of these places
2: in writing this book? So I've never worked in a chip shop, but I have, I have loved fish and chips my whole life. Um, I, I, one of my earliest food memories is my parents coming home, they were both teachers, and, you know, there was six of us kids, And at this time, there's probably only four of us, but um, there was like once a month, we got a chipper feed and my parents would come home with fish and chips. And I have such, I think it's my first food memory is sitting down to this fish and chips wrapped up in newspaper and opening it up and smelling the vinegar and and having salt on it, even though I was like about three. And I, I just loved fish and chips from really early and it felt really luxurious that instead of sitting down to a meal we cooked ourselves that we could go to this kind of like golden place and ask for things off the menu and like give it to you and I still love going to chippers and I still have a big thing for chipper food and my kids do too um so I I was when I go to a chipper I am wide awake to everything that's happening like I, I I love looking at the people who are serving I love how they serve people and how they greet different people differently and i i I love all the machines and the noises and that just the colors of it it's it's yeah i i find shippers easy to paint um the house i mean i i I grew up in a small town with um government built social housing you know these are houses that the government builds for people who would otherwise not be so comfortably accommodated Um, so i would be really familiar with a certain type of um, government built housing in Northern Ireland. Um, I, I didn't grow up in one of those houses, but like a lots of my friends did. So they're really real places in my head. I mean, I, I can step into the chipper in my head. I can step into that. I know it's in the attic in Magella's house, even though it didn't go into the book, I, I know it's in the attic, you know? Um, I believe you. my brain works. <laughs> yeah, I, I
0: totally believe you. I think, yeah, there, there is like an incredible kind of cataloging going on in the way that this world is built. Um, Can you speak a little bit more about chippers? Because this is something that Americans don't have. We have kind of an equivalent in in fast food, but it seems to me that the chipper in in this book is a profoundly social space. And it's a space where a lot of the kind of town gossip gets aired and kind of sorted out and passed along. Um, Do you want to speak a little bit more about about the role of the chipper?
2: So what I love about chippers is that in our in the time that i grew up in a pub was a social space but for a particular type of person and you had to be a particular age um if you went to mass if you went to chapel then you were going to another very social space but it it was a, there was a very specific way of behaving a very acceptable way of behaving um you, you might bump into people at the shops but going to the chipper is the, the chipper was a space at least you know, when I was growing up, it was a space where you could walk in and meet almost anyone. And you might meet people who have been drinking. You might meet people who've just come from a funeral. You might meet people who haven't been out for a week. And it's kind of an unusual space in that it's it's not like the pub or the chapel or anything. It's, it's kind of like everybody being drawn in somewhere because of something everyone needs, which is food. And another thing that really interests me about the chipper is is about the kind of food you can get in it. and. I think people have got a lot more snobby about food now. And, and I know, you know, most small towns would have a nice restaurant and places to go, but I still kind of seek chippers out if I go somewhere because I want to go in and I want to get the temperature of the town I'm in. And I think you can do that in more accurately in a chipper space than you can in a pub. It's just so much more mixed up yeah, to get that.
0: Yeah, and I think the chipper in this book is also kind of um, a really good example of the way that uh, the small town living is inextricable from large scale political struggle um, and and oppression. Um, You know, we kind of see the first scene with Magella in the chipper is right after her grandmother Maggie has died has been murdered, um, and all through her shift, people are coming in and sort of saying, "I hope they get the person who who hurt your grand." you know um, so th- I, and I think that that theme continues throughout the book. Um, can you speak a little bit more about the the political contexts of the book and and um, I was struck by uh, you, you sent along or your publicist sent along an essay that you wrote about the writing of this book, and you said kind of that there were There were kind of these two generations first the children of the troubles and then the ceasefire babies and is 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 this book kind of like perched right on the edge there in between that that shift
2: yeah so magella's magella would be like my generation we were the generation that were born into the troubles and that meant when you know i i lived my whole my my from zero to 18 in the in northern ireland during the troubles and i find it a strange thing because people Often, you know, the media would talk about the children of the troubles as if it was this terrible thing, and I'd be sitting there going, just this is the way we live. this is how it is." And I find it quite hard to understand my parents' generation who could remember before the troubles, and I just kept thinking, "Oh, sure, that's years ago. what? <laughs> you know you know when you're a kid, and you think five years ago is so long ago?" So to me, like ten years ago was like ancient history. Um, so when when the ceasefire happened. People like say like Magella, who grew up in the troubles and only had the troubles, then suddenly had to make this big adjustment to what was called peace, and to a large extent was a much much better um, place to be in terms of violence but Although it was called peace, there was still violence happening um, just in a kind of it, it maybe shifted its focus and the weapons changed but but definitely violence was still happening, and then there was a generation who were born. Who, who were just not old enough to remember the troubles. And these guys were supposed to, you know, have it all. The, the, these kids were gonna be untouched by the troubles and they were gonna grow up and everything was gonna be awesome. And I, like, I think as a child of the troubles, you're a bit like, what, am I damaged goods? <laughs> you know, w- w- what am I now as well? I'm not a kid anymore. I mean, what what do you get to be after you've grown up and what's the impact of it? And I felt very strongly 10 years into the ceasefire that there was a sense of paralysis in among the people and the places I knew that violence was continuing but it wasn't getting reported on the media and it was almost like you'd been abandoned by everyone you know the Brits had gone home and the the American media had gone home nobody was taking photographs of anything really and it was almost a sense and I think there still is that people missed that level of interest in their lives and it's something i tried to capture in the book
0: Mm -hmm. yeah i think that comes through um and i think it comes through also in the character of Magella, like who is she has such an ambivalence towards towards people and towards attention specifically um but you can tell that she's she does long for connection, even though she she says, you know, the number one thing she hates if she could condense everything on her list is just other people. Um, but I, I feel like that that is connected to this kind of like growing up in this time of great conflict when other people do represent a danger to you, um, or at least, uh, you know, a, some kind of a mild threat or or um, yeah, something like that. So um, do you see what do you see as kind of like Magella's major growth in terms of her relationship to other people in the book and maybe in terms of her relationship to her place in history or if if there is growth or if there is any kind of um acceptance or reckoning with that?
2: I think Magella is to a large extent really really dumbfounded by the disappearance of her father which of course is a mystery in the book and I think all the jigsaw pieces to help people resolve that mystery are in the book and except for one. um, Magella kind of has access to a lot of pieces of this jigsaw and she's not in a way quite deliberately not putting all the pieces of the jigsaw together because she wants to believe that the person that she felt most connected to in her whole life, her father, will walk back in through the door and he'll in a way, I guess, save her. So, you know, during her 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 grandmother's funeral, she is waiting for him to come home. That's what she's at the wick. She's at the wick. She's putting up with everything. She's going to go through this with the thought that her father will not if he's disappeared, he will come back and he will be there at that moment. Um so this is I think Magella actually knows very strongly what it's like to be connected to someone and I think she knows how awful it is when you lose that connection, when that connection snatched away from you for whatever reason. And I think she's very clear on what she thinks of as a useful or maybe a loving connection, which I don't think she has with her mother. I think Magella's connection with her mother is really quite um difficult. Um so yeah it, it It's interesting in my head, I kind of have a whole world for what happens next from magella, but i haven't I haven't started to write that it's just i can I can see what happens next if that's you know interesting to anybody else. We'll just have to wait for the next book
0: I guess <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh the journey of of getting this book out into the world, so you said you you wrote it, it you wrote it and then you spent ten years trying to find a publisher for it. Um, where, where did this book begin and kind of, you, you did mention like the moment when you came up with the lists and, and kind of understanding where Magella was coming from is kind of the moment that you, it became publishable. Um, but how did you kind of get from point A to point B and, um, and how do you feel now about the book? I,
2: <laughs> I, I don't know. Cause I, I got the whole overnight success thing thrown at me last week. And I was like, I'd been writing for 35 years <laughs> I mean I, well th- 30 years quite seriously I was 15 when I was first getting published and having my stories recognized um, and I was 23 when I had my brain injury and after that I was in a space where I mean, quite literally I, I couldn't have told you my second name if you said to me what's your name I would say Michelle it was like, enough, that's enough name for anyone. <laughs> but um, I had to work really hard to get back from the place where like, I had my mom spoon feeding me, to be to the space where I could actually just live independently again. And I thought of writing as one of the things I needed to get back. And I started off writing, first of all, with a diary, just to remind myself that, yes, you've had breakfast this morning, Michelle. Yes, this is the date. Um, yes you went for a walk um, and I moved from that to writing short stories um, and then I wrote a short story called Double Tub and it was set in a chipper and it had and, and, and it started this guy called Connor who was a really unhappy guy working in the chipper and he had an alcoholic mum, his dad had disappeared he was being persecuted by the Dilly brothers who appear in Big Girls Small Town so the whole world was there and I was like oh my god I love this world and when I finished the short story, I realized I couldn't let go of that world. The world was there and it needed to be explored. So I took a month off work and it was actually in November and I, and I did Nano NaNoWriMo, you know, the national writer novel in a month um, thing. And I wrote 70,000 words in that November. Um, and I switched from Connor to Magella because I had this great sense of a, a really strong, but very quiet woman in the chipper. And I thought she was a lot more interesting than the Connor figure who would, whose story in a sense has been told already in Northern Ireland. We're we're very familiar with the male experience of the troubles. And after the 70,000 words, it did take me another three years to finish the book because I was a very distractible, um, was I 30 at that point? I can't even remember. And 10 years to get it published because, and I didn't give up because I kept getting great feedback. I kept getting great interest, but it, I couldn't answer everybody's questions. And as soon as I could answer the questions, then it was just, it just rocked from that point.
0: I wanted to think about kind of the lineage of this book. Um, you're being compared to Otessa Mashfeg and Sally Rooney and Anna Burns. Um, and you have a, a fantastic um, epigraph from Anna Burns at the beginning of the book. Um, where do you see? Magella and Big Girl Small Town fitting in with kind of the stories coming out of Northern Ireland um, or the kind of history of stories in Northern Ireland, and how do you feel about some of these comparisons? I'm just curious.
2: <laughs> um, so it's difficult, right? Because I think Anna Burns took maybe ten years to write um, to write Milkman. It, it, Milkman just didn't appear one day out of out of nowhere and I I have actually met Anna in Belfast years ago when she'd written her first novel, which I thought was brilliant, Bones. And and then Anna took a long time to write Milkman. And when Milkman came out and it won the Booker, it was just everyone was just so pleased and so excited. And it's such an amazing novel. But it I don't think that books just kind of exist in, in 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 libraries. So for me another important so Milkman is wonderful, but it didn't influence me writing my book. I think Anna and myself both wrote out of spaces where we felt the female experience was important and we had both experienced violent communities and we both created works born out of that. But she never, I'm sure she's still not read me, but like I hadn't read Milkman until I, I, I until after I'd finished um, uh, Big Girl, Small Town. and. Uh, Lisa McGee, actually, who is the creator of Dairy Girls, which I don't know if you've heard of Dairy Girls. Great, but Dairy great Girls show. Is like a brilliant, awesome show. Um, <laughs> But Derry Girls and Milkman both give people permission to kind of, in a way, look at the darker side of the troubles or to look at the humour. So Dairy Girls does this great thing where it's a completely teenage girl, normal, messed up comedy and, and everything. And it's so much fun, but it also brings out the, it brings the troubles into it in a kind of a way that's almost uncomfortable at times. It's, it's really brave how she juxtaposes these two different things. Um, and with Anna Burns, I know that a lot of people who felt the book was too challenging, actually really enjoyed the audio version, which gives you a lot of permission to laugh, you know? Um, and Because laughter, dark humour was always a coping mechanism in Northern Ireland. No matter how bad something got, there was always somebody somewhere who would say something terrible, but it would be funny. And it would just give you that push to get over something awful. Um, but before um, before these books were out, I was personally very influenced by Brian Moore's The um, Lonely Passion of Miss Judith Hearn, which is a very old book now, but it featured a very unhappy, alcoholic single woman in Belfast. It just Her life's just spiraling around and around and down and I just loved his portrait of this unhappy woman and not nothing much happens. She basically starts off unhappy and gets more unhappy but it's just such a brilliant portrait. Another great book was um, Robert McLean Wilson's Ripley Bogle, which was a completely irreverent account of a brilliant gift, brilliantly gifted student in, who, who drops out of Cambridge and then becomes a homeless guy in London and it's five days of him just tramping around London, reflecting on being in Cambridge in one hand, but also growing up in Ardoyne in Belfast and in a very violent community. But it, the irreverence of it really attracted me, the, the kind of mad comedy in it. And another one, which is not Northern Irish, but is in, comes from the north of Ireland, is um, The Butcher Boy by Pat McCabe. And I, I still remember the first time I, I read that, where again, it's this kind of small community and violence is visited upon it. And these really interesting characters are all coping with events in their own way. Some of that's horrific, some of that's funny. So those would be some of the things that are kind of swirling around in my world.
0: Yeah. I, 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 I hear that. Um, I mean, as an American reader, uh, what kind of came to mind when I was reading, this is actually another debut novel that came out this year called pizza girl by Jean Keong Frazier, who's an LA based writer. And, and they actually, I, you should check it out because I think Magella and the pizza girl narrator would really hit it off. They have similar jobs and, and similar, uh, relationships with their fathers and similar sort of like, um, intense observation of the worlds around them.
2: Um, have you read, have you, sorry, I got it. Cause I realized it didn't really answer your, your, um, the, the comparisons thing. Um, I, I love convenience store woman. Have you read that? Yes. Uh, R- Murata. Oh my goodness. Sayaka Sayaka Murata. Sayaka. Mm-hmm. Murata. And, and I read that and went, Oh, I just want to work in a convenience store. I mean, I, I have worked in stores, I have worked places, but I, I do function. I mean, I've worked in a shirt factory and I actually do tend to function well in these spaces, which are very sort of defined and confined. And there's a staff handbook and there's a uniform and I just can work, bounce around in that little space. And I love it. I, I It's like... It, every object is usually fascinating to me and and then the people who come in and how they interact with all the objects in that space it's just be, yeah humans are really fascinating it's like having a little human zoo you know um yeah.
0: yeah i see that i think i think these kind of liminal commercial spaces like convenience stores and like chippers are are kind of where you get that granular detail of humanity, right? Like you can take someone to a fancy restaurant and they will put on airs and become a different person. But if you take them to a chip shop, they're gonna order what they want. They're gonna tell you what's on their mind. <laughs> you know, there's no there's no pretense. And I think also with Magella, you know, her dedication to routine is also a way to, for her to observe, like unobserved, right? That she's she's over here busily making her chips, but meanwhile, she's taking in everything around her um, and while people are kind of ignoring her and thinking you know she's part of the scenery, but really she's very alive to everything um, it's it's just fantastic I, I like, yeah, you're making me want to go and order some chips
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's two types of people because there's two types of food in, in in that there is the chipper food and then there is also um Chinese cuisine well, the small town version of Chinese cuisine and I people who said to me that they finished the book and then had to rush out and order food. You're either a, you know, a fish and chips person or you're a chicken balls and rice person. And (laughs) I I would love to do some kind of survey to see (laughs) if you could like predict who's going to be what.
0: (laughs) Um, Oh yeah. Pizza girl. There she is. There she is. So uh, I wanted to think before, before I sort of wrap up here, um, I wanted to think about, you know, what in the process of making this book and bringing it into the world, um, were there moments that really surprised you? Like either with, with the creation of Magella or with your kind of long, difficult publishing journey, um, what's kind of like really stuck with you in the, in the life of this book so
2: far? I think the thing that's been most astonishing is that Magella from the start was a real she's she takes up a lot of space in my head and the world does too um and I, I really believed in her so even though I was getting these knockbacks essentially people saying that we love the book but we can like how do we sell her you know I mean publishers are really interested in how they can sell someone um so even though they were loving the book they needed to be able to say who give people an in on Magella. and I think the thing that I've just just really really been pleased about is is that Magella is not neurotypical she is not conventionally gorgeous um she's not trying to be likable she's not trying to be anything she's just being herself and I'm I'm just loving how people are taking to her and people are feeling sympathy for her or laughing with her and they 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 get invested in her and I and I I love it when um, I love it when the underdog gets a bit of attention really um, so that's that's the bit that makes me really happy.
0: Well I will say as a personal recommendation I've been having such a hard time getting into novels lately I think the pandemic has just destroyed my attention span but I opened this book and I fell right into it like I, I cared so much about Magella so instantly it is so rare to meet a narrator that is that straightforward and honest and funny and dark and like she, I just cared about her immediately, like you really pulled it off, <laughs> like I really care about Magella, and I want the best for her. Um, so thanks so for nice. thank her. you for reminding her and thank you for breaking my, my dry spell of reading novels, so <laughs> I really oh, appreciate I, I, that.
2: I did, I did hear that from a few people though, that they were struggling with, you know, books and m- somehow I don't know if it's because of how it's structured or the fact that you really do bounce between a chipper and a house, the pub, and a few trips up to the farm, but is it there's something reassuring even for people who are overloaded that it's funny and you get to know this world and you get to know these characters without being, I don't know, overwhelmed? Maybe yeah. there's something, in it. it would be interesting to see why it works.
0: Yeah. Well, I wonder if it's because Magella is often overwhelmed and she's trying to make sense of her world. And that is helpful to the reader to to be with a narrator who's trying to make sense of things rather than making things more confusing.
2: Well, this is the thing. And also, I, I think there's a, a way that Magella has just basically boiled her life down to 10 things that work for her. And, and she, she's not sitting there and missing her trips to Paris, or, you know, wishing she could be in New York. She's actually working in her chipper. And she's really, she really does have a deep appreciation for the things that work in her life, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I think that that kind of, maybe acceptance
0: isn't the right word, but comfort or sort of dwelling with um, the conditions of her life. Uh, it's really admirable. And it's something that I wish... I could achieve. <laughs> and I think, I think yeah. just reading about her routines has been really soothing to me. I mean, I'm an overalls person too. So <laughs> I, we, have, we share a similar fashion sense. Um, but it, it's, I think it's good because I think she is able to, within these routines, find so much depth and find so much, so much surprising about the people around her that she knows so, so well. She's still uncovering these little details about them. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's a good reminder in pandemic times that you actually haven't really lost so much. Um, You just need to deepen your observations and and kind of find the routines that work for you. Not to say that this is a self-help novel at all, but (laughs) that's where I've gone with it. (laughs) Um, Well, Michelle, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I'm so delighted that uh, you joined us today, and I really hope our readers take a look at Big Girl, Small Town, because I think they're gonna find a lot to love
2: there. And I, I thanks so much for having me, Maddie. And I, I know you have a lot of readers of books. And I would also just say to them, maybe download a sample of the audiobook, which was narrated by Nicola Coughlin, and she is one of the Derry Girls. So um, Nicola narrated the, the, the audiobook, and it was her fir- the first time she's ever narrated a book. So uh, it was just uh, sort of amazing for me to have a debut novel come out and have Nicola record the audio version. All right, lovely
0: listeners. Well, you heard it here. The book is Big Girl, Small Town and the author today was Michelle Gallen. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure talking with you about the book and about Magella. Um, and listeners. I hope you check it out either in book form or audio book form. Uh, I think that's all for today. So we'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for listening, everybody.